0: There was a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi who lived in Israel during the time when the judges were in charge. There was a great shortage of food in Israel that caused them to move to a foreign country called Moab. Elimelech and Naomi raised two sons, and when their sons grew up, they each married women from Moab. Sadly, Naomi's husband and two sons died and Naomi was left alone with her two daughter-in-laws. She told them that she was going to move back to Israel and that they should return to their own families. But one of the women, Ruth, refused to leave Naomi. She said, wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So Naomi and Ruth moved back to Israel to begin a new life. One day, Ruth went to a field to pick up the grain that the farmers had left behind. Little did she know that the owner of the field was Boaz, a relative of Naomi. Boaz was kind to her and offered her to come find food whenever she wanted. Naomi was getting older, so she came up with a plan to provide for Ruth once she was gone. Naomi suggested that Ruth go down to the barley threshing floor where Boaz would be resting. Uncover his feet and ask him to take care of her. Ruth took Naomi's advice. She uncovered Boaz's feet and lay down next to him. In the middle of the night, Boaz woke up startled. Ruth asked him to care for and protect her. Boaz said he needed to first buy the land she lived on so that he would have the right to marry her. So Boaz brought together the decision makers of his town and asked for permission to buy the land. The leaders gave Boaz permission and prayed that God would help Ruth be a great wife. They were married and had a son named Obed who would soon become the grandfather of one of the greatest leaders Israel had ever known.
1: And we're learning through this series how consistent God is, who he is, and why he is worthy of our worship and our praise. And we saw in the book of Judges was that the nation went through a cycle over and over again. And we looked at what that cycle is because we often go through that very same cycle. And we get stuck in our faith. And we see that we really aren't that much unlike those people back then. We do the same things. Now, as we end the book of Judges, we read this very, very discouraging verse. Uh, J- Judges 21, verse 25 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. <clears throat> now hear this. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Well, the reason there wasn't a king was because God was to be their king. And we're going to see this in the next couple of weeks when God relents and allows Israel to have a king, but warns them that kings, human kings, are going to lead us astray. And indeed, that happens over and again throughout the Old Testament. God intended to be the king of the people. He intended to be your king. He intended to be my king. Now, when there is a king, we become the servants of the king. That's how it works in a monarchy. You have a king, then you have the servants. God is the king. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of the world. He's the king of my heart and my life. And I pray that He is the king of your life as well. When He's not the king, here's what happens it's anarchy. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And as we read in Isaiah 55, our ways are not God's ways. We do not see eternity in a moment. We do not see and comprehend what God sees and comprehends. And so when we make decisions based on human wisdom, it often leads us down the wrong path. I wonder this morning, is he your king? Is the Lord your king? Or do you live your life based on what is right just in your own eyes? I know I can't trust my own heart, my own mind, my own eyes, and so I try to lay my life before my king. Now what makes this so interesting uh, this morning as we go through the book of Ruth is that Ruth is living during the time of the judges. So last week we saw in the book of Judges this huge macro view of what was happening in all of Israel. Now this morning, we're going to see what is happening in the life of one family. We're going to learn what is happening in the lives of Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. And we're going to see four truths this morning that I think are profound and powerful. And, I, and they require for us, in some instances, a paradigm shift. And the way that we see the world, the way that we see God, the way that we see ourselves. And so here's the first thing that I want you to see. God loves the world and he loves you. I love this in in Ruth uh, chapter 2 verse 12. We read this. The Lord, Boaz says to Ruth, The Lord repay you for what you have done because she had cared for Naomi. The Lord... Repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz has an incredible perspective on the world and on eternity. He sees that by staying with Naomi, Ruth was making a decision to find refuge not under the wings of Naomi, not under Boaz's wings, not under the wings of Israel, but under the wings of God. I think what often happens to us is we try to find refuge under the wings of doctors. Now, there's, obviously we should see doctors, but doctors are servants of the Lord or should be servants of the Lord. So we find ourselves, when we're going through financial distress, under the wings of a bank, or under the wings, and we keep looking for worldly ways to solve our problems. Now, God uses worldly ways to solve our problems, but first and foremost, we are to seek to be under the wings of the Lord. We are to come to the Lord with our troubles and our fears, and indeed, in this time in the life of Ruth and Naomi, they were in trouble. They needed help. And Boaz, even though he will be the instrument of, of helping these two women. He understands that he's just an instrument of God, that ultimately they are under the wings of the Lord. Now, the other thing that strikes me about this is that as we read through Judges, we see God looking at all of the nation and all of the national things that are happening. And he raises up people to deal with the the problems that people have. But what we see in this little book of just four chapters is that God doesn't just care about huge, big things that have national and international implications. He's not just concerned about wars. He's not just concerned about elections. He's not just concerned about other issues that affect the globe and the world. He's concerned about you. He he wants to know you. You matter to him. And so we have in this story with all these incredible things happening nationally and internationally in that part of the world, what do we see? We see God's care and provision for this little family. Friends, I've had people say to me before, you know, Pastor, I don't really feel like I, I, I can really share this need in my life because... God has such bigger problems to deal with. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? Have you ever felt that? You see, you and I are limited by time and space. God is not limited by time and space. He knows everybody who's here in this place this morning. He knows everybody's name. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows who you are. He knows your needs better than you do. He knows you. And that's what we see in the book of Ruth. God knew Ruth. He knew Elimelech. He knew Naomi. He knew these people. And at the same time, he's ministering through Gideon, through Samson. And he's dealing with huge issues in the nation. I find that to be incredibly incredible good news and incredibly comforting why would this little book be in here this is the first reminder that I want you to see here's the second thing that I want you to see and that is that God commands he commands concern for the poor in chapter 2 verse 3 we read this so she speaking of speaking of Ruth Naomi sends her, she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, that's going to be important in just a moment. So, what's happened is, and you saw the, the summary, if you didn't do the reading, you saw the summary on the video. But what we saw was that Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, left the promised land. And they went to Moab because of a great famine that had struck the land. Their sons, their sons intermarry with people who don't believe and love the Lord God. So there seems to be a real sense that this is a family that's not walking with God. The two sons pass away. Elimelech dies. It leaves Naomi with her two daughter-in-laws. She says, I'm going back to Bethlehem. I'm going back to Israel. I'm going back to Judah. And Ruth says, I want to go with you. Now they come back. Widows in that culture, it was a struggle to survive. It was a struggle to survive. They wouldn't have enough food. So Naomi sends Ruth out into the fields to glean. Now Here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear the heart of God. I want you to hear the heart of God for the poor. What God had instructed in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, he had given laws dictating that the people who, had agri- who worked in agriculture, who had fields, that each corner they would not glean or reap crops from the corners of their fields. Now, why would he do that? The reason was so that the people who were poor and the foreigner who was coming through their land would have food to eat, so they could go to any field, and if the, the person who owned that field was obeying God, there would be four corners where they could glean food, grain, or crops, so that they could eat, so that they could survive. He also The Lord also instructed that when they dropped something as they were gleaning or reaping, as they dropped something, that they would leave it on the ground so that somebody later who was poor could come and could pick it up and could use it for food. You see, God built into the fabric of his, of his nation in which he had given laws that they were to care for the poor that they were to care for the alien in their midst, the stranger in their midst, so that they would have food to survive. This is the heart of God, and the church of Jesus Christ is to continue to reflect that heart of generosity today. We are to reflect that very same heart of God. One of the things I love about this church is, it's, is her heart for generosity. In the back table today, you're going to find a uh, sheet here like this, if you'd like to see it, that names just some of the organizations that we are as a church are connected to, are connected with, so that we are working to provide provide for those in our community, in our nation and our world who are in need. You can serve in any of these areas of ministry. You can come alongside any of these areas of ministry. Pastor Lon mentioned this morning, Operation Christmas Child. It is a way that we, by just buying things and putting them in a box, and they put the gospel of the good news about Jesus and the language of the child that will receive the box, and these boxes go all over the world. You, as a church family, have been so committed to that ministry over the years. Your generosity is encouraging and inspiring. But we need to continue to continue to continue. We can grow weary. We can lose our focus. And so here are just some in our area. Inland Valley Hope Partners in Pomona. Mercy House in Santa Ana. World Renew, which is a way that we connect with things throughout the world. Chino Neighborhood House. Food for Life here in Chino. God's Pantry in Pomona. Isaiah's Rock, which is just a stone's throw from our church that provides supplies for people in need Um, uh, through Rooted, our ministry Rooted. We often go and and we volunteer there. I love going to Isaiah's Rock. I love volunteering at Isaiah's Rock because I get to meet incredible people, not just the people who work there, but the people who come there in need. You see, God has a heart, and he built into the fabric of his nation that he built to reflect his nature and his character. He built into the fabric of that nation a way to provide for the poor, a way to provide for those in need. This morning following the service, pick up one of those and and get, you could call the church or you could get information about a way that you can connect with that ministry. We have a missions team that helps people to connect with the mission opportunities that we support here's a third thing that I want you to see, and that is character matters. Don't we hear that all the time? Character matters until it doesn't, right? I can remember um, my, all three of my kids played a variety of different sports in middle school and high school. And I remember by the time my Katie was going through, I could pretty much tell you the speech we were gonna hear as parents at the beginning of the season. Here's what they always said, this isn't just about ability, this is about character. And the character kids will play. Well, I only saw that happen once. You know who played? The best athletes. The best players. The players that could help us to win. And I thought, that's a terrible message to give to kids who have good character and aren't as good athletically. Because if you're going to say character matters, character should matter. I think often, even as Christians, we fall prey to compromising our own character. When we see a way, we see a shortcut in life that we think will make our life easier, that's when we are seeing making decisions based on our own wisdom and not on God's wisdom. And we think we know better than God. And so we cut corners and we're just a little dishonest here, just a little dishonest there, because really, really, we're not sure that character matters. Character matters to God. Character matters to God. He sees what we do on our tax forms. He sees what we do when nobody else is listening. Nobody else is watching. He sees and he hears all of it. He knows what's going on in our lives. And character matters. I've never, I've read this book many times over the years. I never did this. But this week, I just went through and I started looking for examples of character. Let me just run through a couple of them very quickly. Loyalty. Loyalty. I see it in Ruth. You know, as I was looking at this, at what she said, you heard it in the video, But as I was reading through this, and this is actually chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. I apologize for that. It's not chapter 2. It's chapter 1. And Ruth said to Naomi, okay, when she's telling Naomi that um, she's not going to go back, she's going to stay with Naomi. And there are some great, now you wouldn't want to use everything in here as a wedding vow, but there's some great things here. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Now this one I wouldn't do. Where you die, I will die. And there will and there be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. That's a pretty profound vow, isn't it? And you know what? Ruth lives it out. She goes with Naomi. Naomi's not, uh, maybe she's not healthy enough, maybe she's older now, and she can't go out and glean the extra from the fields in order to eat. Who is it that's doing it? Ruth. Ruth goes out, and she, at the very end of the book, she is still providing for Naomi. She never leaves Naomi. She finds a husband in Boaz, and Ruth is still part of her life. It's such a beautiful picture, and, though, and, and, and the child that she, that she bears, and the, the child that she gives birth to has no blood relation to Naomi, but Naomi is like a grandmother, and the women of the town, because she has had so much loss, the women of the town say, Naomi, look how God has blessed you. Look how God has blessed you such a phenomenal picture and then very quickly courage boaz said to her all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before boy doesn't that take courage this is a courageous woman she doesn't know what she's getting into She's leaving all of her life in Moab, all that she knows in Moab, and she gets up and she goes with Naomi and has no idea how they're even going to be provided for. And Boaz sees that in Ruth, and he honors her for her courage. We read on and we see the humility of Boaz. Friends, this is a, if you are in a position of authority anywhere in your life, pay attention to this. This struck me as I read it. Boaz comes from Bethlehem where he lives, and he goes to his field, or probably one of many fields, and his reapers are there, the people reaping from the land, working for him. The Lord be with you, he says. And they replied, and with the Lord bless you as well. You see something in Boaz, this humility he doesn't see himself above these people. He is ministering to these people. They work for him, and he says, the Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. You'll get the impression that his heart is the heart of a servant, and he's serving them. I remember a story many years ago that I read about a, um, a guy that worked for Alaska Airlines, and he was, he was a vice president. He was way up high. And they had heard that there was low morale in the team that came to clean the the planes and the bathrooms on the planes when they would land. And so, this executive vice president, this very important man, gets down and he goes to work side by side with these workers. And for a season, he's cleaning the planes alongside them, and the morale shot through the roof. He's telling them, there is nothing. What you're doing is so important that I'm going to do it with you. This is so important. What you, your job is so valuable. And we see Boaz just ministering to these to people. Generosity, we see this in Boaz and Naomi. And as Boaz instructs, actually we see it in Ruth as well. He instructs his men, hey, give her a little extra. Give her a little extra. Now remember, his blood rel- relative is Naomi. It's not, it's not Ruth. And so we come to the last thing I want you to see from this book, and that is this. Jesus has come for all people and all nations. God is not, he's not just the God of Israel. He's not just the God of any nation. He's the God of the world. Our heart is not just For our nation, it's for the world. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We want people to hear the gospel. We want people to to be discipled and to learn and to grow in their faith. Jesus came for all nations. Let me show you two quick points that illustrate this. Ruth, who is a Moabite, she's not a Jew. She's a Moabite. She came from a godless nation. She doesn't even really know God, apparently, until she comes to Israel. She makes this this commitment to Naomi. Your God will be my God. And we see in Matthew 1.5, who is it that is in the line of Jesus? A non-Jew. Now, why would that be significant? Because God is telling a people who saw themselves often as God's people. God is for us, not for you. And sometimes as Christians, wherever we are, whatever country we're in, we can see God is for us, but not for you. That is not what the Bible teaches. God didn't have to have a Moabite in the family lineage of Jesus. He's teaching us something. By the way, Rahab's in there too, and she was a lady of the night. And she's not a Jew. What is God saying to us? He came for all people, all nations, all tribes. We don't just love America. We love the world for the sake of the kingdom of God. We love our country, but we love people in all nations because they need Jesus. God loves them. And then we see this. Jesus is the great kinsman redeemer. Now, for some of you, that is a new word, and I want to quickly explain what it means. A kinsman redeemer is what really lies at the very foundation of this whole story. A kinsman redeemer is a male relative. It's a male relative who has the responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who is in need. Now you read that, at the, now the book will make sense. You read at the end of the book, it seems kind of strange, but Boaz wants to take Ruth as his wife. Now, Naomi and Ruth have no money, but they do have Elimelech's land. It's up to a kinsman redeemer to purchase that land. And Boaz was not first in line as a kinsman redeemer. There's three things that a kinsman redeemer uh, helped them to qualify. Number one, blood relative. Number two, they had the means, the finances to help. And number three, they were willing to help. Boaz goes to the kinsman redeemer and he calls all the leaders of the town to sit and to listen to their discussion. Because... What he says is, you are the next of kin. You are the one, the kinsman redeemer, who is to redeem the land for Naomi and Ruth. And when he finds out that he also has to take Naomi and Ruth, he says, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. Boaz then steps up to be the kinsman redeemer. Now, why is this significant? You could just read it through as a nice little story. It's more than that. Jesus is the great kinsman redeemer. Jesus fulfills that role in all who come to know God by faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what we read in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Jesus became fully human. He was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem. He's he's a kinsman redeemer as the Old Testament understood it, he redeemed us so that we might receive adoption into sonship. What is it saying? Jesus became fully human. He became one of us. He bled like we bleed. He is fully human. And only someone who was fully human could stand in our place to redeem us. That is why It is so critical to understand that Jesus was fully man and yet still fully God, born of a virgin by the work of the Holy Spirit as we celebrate every Christmas. It's significant because it makes him a blood relative of ours to fulfill the Redeemer uh, kinship. What was it again? Thank you. And second, he has the necessary resources. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 1. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, we see that again, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish and without defect. Jesus had the necessary resources to redeem us in that he lived the perfect life we could never live. Nobody could stand in our place unless they stood in our place as a perfect, spotless Lamb of God, without blemish, without defect, without sin. Jesus fulfilled not only the blood relationship to us as human beings, but the necessary resources, and then finally, the willingness to buy us, the willingness to redeem us. You see, the man, the first kinsman, redeemer, said, I don't want to buy her. I don't want her. I don't want to buy that land. Then Boaz said, well, I'm blood relative, and I have the resources, and I have the willingness to redeem her. Jesus Christ looked at you, and he said, I spilled my blood, my human blood for you. I am going to adopt you as my son. He said, I have the means because of the perfect life I live. I have the means to redeem you. And then finally, he says this, I am willing to redeem you. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life for him only to take it up again. Now hear this, hear this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus was not a victim of the cross. Jesus chose the cross. He's the great kinsman redeemer. And he redeemed us and he set us free. I want to close with this incredible story. I, I love history. Many of you know that. And um, I read that really thick book by, uh, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. No pictures. Boy, that was a rough one for me. And little words. Well, not small words, but little print and big words. And I read this recently. In 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had been arrested. He was placed in a cell. Listen to what he wrote to a friend. Just a few weeks before Advent, which begins in just a few weeks for us. Which Advent, if you're not familiar with, it's the preparation for Christmas, the coming of Jesus. Jesus. He says this, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside, which is the picture of Advent. Friends, before we came to Christ, before I came to Christ, I was a prisoner in a cell of my own making. I was limited by my sinful nature and by living for myself. I was enslaved by the things that I was pursuing and living for. I couldn't open that prison door. Only Jesus, the kinsman redeemer, could open that door because it only opens from the outside. Some of you here today. Man, you're in a bad place. You're in a cell of your own making. Jesus knows. He understands. He cares. And he's the only one who can open that cell. You can't, I can't. Only the great redeemer. He wants to set you free. He wants to release you from your bondage. He wants to give you life. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for your truth. Lord, every time I read through Ruth, it's just so different from the other books of the Bible. And it's such a joy to read because we're reminded of such amazing truths about who you are. God, may our hearts be filled as they never have been before of the reality that you are the great redeemer. You are the one who can unlock the cell. Open the door that we may get out of addictions, that we may get out of living for ourselves, that we may get out of our fears and our insecurities, that we may live a life that is marked by love.